Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Dr. Shetra Wurta Liker for part one of their discussion on the impact of race and culture on attachment therapy. Part two will be released well, on hey, Tuesday, everybody. October 29th. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm super excited about the interview I have today. It's going to be a real treat for you guys um, to hear from the person I'll be speaking with today. And I'm going to give you a little background about her. First of all, of course, her name is Dr. Shetra Warda Liker, and she is going to be speaking about attachment security and the impact of race and racism on attachment security. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Warda Liker. I'm going to share her bio. Since taking my first psychology class in high school, I knew this was the field which I was meant to work in. When the Columbine High School tragedy occurred so close to home, I became dedicated to working with youth and families who experienced trauma, and this connected strongly with my other areas of passion, including adoption and bullying. So obviously, Dr. Warda Liker is in Colorado. She was adopted from India as an infant, and so understands firsthand what it's like to struggle with issues of race, identity, societal expectations, and family relationships. She then went on to adopt her son from Ethiopia, and so her awareness of the multifaceted and complex world of adoption grew. So here we have someone transracially adopted And then also adopting transracially, I just think this is like such an important voice for us to be hearing. So she has now worked in the mental health field for over a decade. She's a licensed psychologist in Colorado. Uh, Her uh, practice is called Beyond Words, and she shares that she believes every individual who visits her office has a unique story to share. And she desires to have them share their story in a safe, caring, and supportive space. She believes the therapeutic relationship is built on trust and collaboration and goes beyond language to a place of genuine understanding and hence the name Beyond Words. Dr. Orda Liker has training in many different clinical models, EMDR, play therapy, TBRI, TheraPlay. Uh, She's also a psychologist, a licensed psychologist who does psychological assessments. So I'm looking forward to sharing this interview with all of you, and we'll be back in just a moment. Experienced and proven strategies in the field of behavioral health straight from the experts at the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Josh Carlson for Attachment Theory in Action. This training will feature practical interventions to support your attachment-based clinical practice. Coming to a city near you, visit tkcchaddock.org to learn more. Well, I'm here again with the Attachment Theory in Action podcast and very excited to introduce my guest today to all of you. Uh, I have with me, and I know I've already shared a little bit about her background, but uh, this is Dr. Shetra Wurta Liker, 
and she is going to be talking to us about the impact of race and racism on attachment security. And I'm so happy to have you here today. So first, could you just start out with sharing a little bit about what brings you to the field and and to this topic in particular, because you're uniquely qualified to talk about this. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I um, So not only do I specialize in working with adoptees and especially transracial adoptees who are working through racial identity issues, but um, I sort of jokingly refer to my perspective as the trifecta perspective because I'm coming at it from the clinical lens, but also from the personal side of being a, a transracial adoptee and an adoptive parent. Um, so I, I try to pull all of those perspectives into my work. And it, um, you know, as far as the racial identity piece and how race impacts attachment, you know, growing up as an adoptee, I always knew I was adopted. You know, my parents are both white and I was born in India, so I, I was going to figure it out eventually, right? But essentially, I, I know that I was adopted, but we never really talked about race. And so it was something that was there and I, you know, I felt it, but I couldn't articulate it. I never had the words. And it, I don't think it was through any fault of my parents. You know, I think they did what they thought they were supposed to. They did the best they could. They, um, they aren't big talkers and communicators. So they did things like getting me um, dolls with brown skin or, or small things like that. But we never really talked about why. And so as I grew older and really started to understand what racism is, especially in more covert forms like microaggressions, which we're going to talk about today. Um, absolutely. Yeah, very important. Uh-huh. Um, so, so once I started to learn more about that, and, it, and honestly, that wasn't even until I was in graduate school and took my first multicultural class that I felt like I really started to understand on a deeper level. And it just, it fell into place for me. It made so much sense. And so, you know, I, my son is black. And so certainly he has different experiences in the world than I do as a woman who's Indian. Um, but learning more and more about all of this, I felt like I, I want other transracial adoptees, adoptees of color, to have the words to articulate what they're going through and to normalize the experiences and validate them um, because it, it really creates a lot of self-doubt when you're feeling these things, but wondering, am I the only one who feels this way? Am I being too sensitive? I just can't take a joke right, all those kind of gaslighting type things that happen, you really start to internalize them. Yes, and I think uh, for many children who are children of color adopted by white parents, Mm -hmm. there's this idea, well, you know, we just don't want to make this an issue and, you know, the whole colorblind idea. and, And I think it's important to hear too from you how that transmits that they're thinking that's coming from a good place and Mm -hmm. acting like this doesn't matter. We love you no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, But that how that translates to feeling unsafe and insecure Mm -hmm. as we talked about, you know, in terms of 
this is such a big issue. I mean, how it relates to attachment and connection is it can erode safety to yeah. not feel like, well, A, you don't have the words to talk about it, mm-hmm. but B, that you're not supposed to talk about it. Right. What are your thoughts about some of that? Yeah, I mean, so much of that comes from a place of privilege. And, and I think what happens is, especially white adoptive parents, they, they get defensive about that quickly. And, and no one's saying that it's a bad thing that they have privilege, but I think that automatically that guilt starts to come up and it's easier to just put up defenses against it and deny it or, you know, and, and a lot of times when white adoptive parents are sharing with me, you know, I don't see color, I just see my child. I think they're being genuine, you know, I mean, for them, it's not necessarily about seeing their child's race. It's about, I see my child and I love them. But what I tell a lot of parents is you have to prepare your child for how the world is going to see them. Regardless of what you might see, the world isn't going to see them the same way. And so a lot of times I use the traffic safety analogy with them that, you know, you don't not teach your child about the safety rules of crossing the street because you're so worried that they're going to be afraid to cross the street that they'll never walk across, right? You teach them so that they can be prepared and informed and make safe decisions and they know what's coming. But it's the same thing with race and racism. So many parents, I think, are afraid to talk about it, first of all, because they don't have the language either and they're worried about making a mistake. But also, I think they're afraid they're going to scare their kids if they talk about the racism they'll experience. And what I tell them, it's not an if, it's a when. And so it's that same thing as as traffic safety, right? You teach them, you share with them, you prepare so that they know what they can do in that situation to stand up for themselves or to stay safe, you know, physically or emotionally. Um, And it really, I mean, as I talk with adult adoptees of color, what comes up so often, the times that they feel like they've been most traumatized by incidents of racism, um, aside from overt things, the covert times when they didn't understand what was happening and they either laughed along with something that was actually making fun of them or they had that deer in headlights feel and they didn't know how to respond. And so they look back on it now and they felt so helpless, so powerless. And so I think it's really important for parents to be in this journey with their children, working on, we need to learn this language together. We need to talk about this together. It needs to be an open dialogue. It's not a a one and done kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It needs to be something where they're in this journey with their children fully. Because the truth is, even if you are, uh, you know, we, we talk about, you know, intention versus impact, you know, and if, even if your intention is, oh, no, I don't want to make an issue that something's not an issue or I don't, you know, I don't want them to feel unsafe. You know, I, if you're talking about attachment, I want them to feel safe and protected by me. But really, it causes the opposite. Exactly. Exactly. I think what I hear you saying too, that I think is so important that, um, the, uh, the, the concept of gaslighting where the world doesn't see me the way you're seeing me. You said you point that out to parents and therefore I experience something out there different, but then I come home and you're telling me that's not happening. Right. 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 Parents so often do that. Their, their intentions are coming from a protective place, but the impact is it creates a lot of self-doubt in their children that they can't trust their instincts. And, 
I really do believe when it comes to racism that people of color have a sixth sense about what, what that feels like, what it is. And it's not something that can always be articulated really clearly. And so, you know, with parents, it, they need to be able to understand their biases and self-reflect on them. And, and we all have them, right? I mean, that's not something that's unique to white adopted parents. We all have biases, we all have privileges. And so we need to be able to recognize how that privilege around race may impact attachment. Because if your child doesn't feel like they can safely talk to you about incidents of racism or even just what it's like to be a person of their race, um, you know, outside the scope of racism, their lived experience in the world, if they can't share that with you safely, then there's no way that a secure attachment can fully be formed. I feel like that's a, a cornerstone of attachment and transracial adoption. Yes, because you can't just set this part of your identity over here and have that not be part of the relationship and then feel like you're being fully transparent and honest with who you, I mean, it just, it just doesn't, yeah. doesn't go together. And I, I guess I think too, there's like, as you're speaking, I'm thinking there's two layers here. There's one layer of there may be topics you can't talk to your parents about that kind of thing. But this is different. This is like, not only that, which is true, but this, again, getting back to the gaslighting, really it's not even happening, mm -hmm. which is a whole other layer of, I just can't talk about this to my Absolutely. parents, right? Right, and then kids get into the mode of trying to protect their parents. You know, they see like, oh, my parents can't handle this topic, it's too much for them, they get too emotional or they get too defensive. And it, it becomes either this, this level of gaslighting where the kids are doubting themselves and they're, their experiences in the world, or they're seeing that, okay, this is something I have to handle on my own. Even if I know it's real and it's valid, home isn't a safe place to talk about it. They, they can't handle it, so I have to protect them. And so often I'll hear about incidents of racism from my clients you know, who are adoptees of color in session, and it's not something they shared with their parents because well, you know, my, my dad just, he gets really uncomfortable. He doesn't want to talk about it and he, he doesn't really want to believe it. Or my mom gets really sad and cries and doesn't understand why it's going on. I mean, parents really have to be able to sit with their kids in this and not overpower the situation with their own reactions, whether it's something on the more dismissive end of the continuum or something that's more reactive. Yes. And I think, um, you know, well, I'll just interject quickly here, since we're using the term gaslighting, most people may know what it is, maybe not. I'll just say it comes from a 1940s movie called Gaslight, where a man was trying to convince his wife that she was going insane and he would adjust the gaslights and she would notice they were going on and off. And then he would tell her they were not. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of where we get that term. It's this idea that I'm, I'm experiencing this, but people around me are telling me I'm not experiencing it. And that is making me feel like really crazy inside, you know? So just, just to add that to the conversation, but I wanted to also say, wouldn't you also say when you're talking about this piece of, uh, protecting parents, um, my, understanding in talking with adoptees 
is, you know, you mentioned a sixth sense with people of color about these issues. Seems that adoptees sometimes have a sixth sense of what their adoptive parents can handle and manage. Coming from a history of, you know, uh, perhaps some, some core issues about losing parents and other things that come, come with that, being hyper vigilant about the parents' feelings is, so this is like so, so layered, isn't it? Absolutely. It's so complex. And it, it, but that's exactly why it needs to be addressed because it's interconnected with all of these other pieces that you can't take someone's racial identity away from who they are as a person. Like you said, it can't be separated out and set to the side. And so it has to be part of the complexity around building a secure attachment and talking about emotions and tough losses and, and lived experiences around adoption. You know, all of those pieces are so interconnected. And, and that's why it's, it's so, honestly, it's baffling to me that this isn't something that is talked about more in sessions or in trainings um, because it's such a huge gap in, in really being able to create that secure attachment. And, and even when I talk with adult adoptees of color who talk about, you know, they thought they were close to their parents when they were young, or even I thought I was a really good fit with this therapist, and they become older and they start to learn more about racism and, and develop their own racial identity, and suddenly they're realizing, you know, I, I really didn't know what closeness felt like or I really didn't know what it meant to fully trust somebody or feel safe with them. Mm -hmm. um, it's this awareness that really is painful. You know, it's liberating, but painful at the same time because they start to doubt, Do, have I ever had a secure attachment? Have I ever had anybody that I really felt safe with? Wow. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking having, um, you know, interacted with you and Melanie Chung Sherman and some others who I consider my mentors on this issue because I'm, I feel I've only myself in the last few years started to like fully register the, like I, the magnitude of, of all of this. Mm -hmm. um, even though I was working in adoption and I'm a clinical social worker and gone to all the diversity trainings and all of that um but that are usually taught by somebody yeah. who's white and yes. you know has all the privileges right, right. So that, that kind of is leading into you know what I was going to say about what I've learned in talking with some of you uh therapists of color and adopted uh that you have experienced children of color coming into your office and there's almost a visible it seems like a visceral visible relief mm -hmm. that they're seeing a therapist of color um what what and i know this is kind of a provocative question but what are your <laughs> thoughts of, you know sometimes i feel like I, I, are white therapists able to do this adequately yeah. And in all honesty, I don't know. I mean, I think that's something we're still trying to figure out and trying to understand. I, I, I know a lot of, well, I, I know some white therapists who are incredibly well-versed in understanding race. I mean, to the, to the best of their ability as far as knowledge and trainings and truly listening to 
therapists of color or adoptees of color. I mean, they're really trying it and they're open to being vulnerable and acknowledging I don't know everything and there will be times when I make mistakes and I'm open to repairing those mistakes and repairing our relationship in that way. And, and I think that does go a long way. Um, but at the same, same time, I think there's still this difficulty of with, with any type of, of issue you may be bringing into therapy, someone with lived experience is just likely to have that unspoken bond, that unspoken understanding of what you've been through. And, and where I, I struggle with this, you know, and wondering, can white therapists truly provide that service to adoptees of color, um, is that if the client is having to educate them during the sessions, I mean, to some extent, we all have to do that with our therapists, but if it gets to a point where they're doing more of that it, it gets in the way of their work. It impedes the ability to be completely genuine and vulnerable if you feel like you have to educate the other person about that experience. And so, hey, yeah, I, I don't know that there's a clear answer on that yet. And, and I think that's tough for a lot of therapists who are white to hear because, again, their intentions are good. They're, they're trying their best. They feel like they've connected with these clients of color, but I think it goes back to that same thing with white adoptive parents, that the first step is being able to recognize your biases, your privileges, and to start to really self-reflect on those and dig into those and, and take ownership of those and how they play out in a relationship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and I think the other thing I would like if you could speak to a bit is the difference, the differences between race, culture, some of these things, because I also think that, um, you know, for a lot of years when I would talk to adoptive parents, it was sort of like, well, we're, we're doing a culture camp. And <laughs> so we got it all covered. Lucky here. Yeah. 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 And, or, or, um, my child doesn't want to go to the culture camp mm -hmm. and that is translated. So we don't bring up culture, race, anything, because that's like our, and in terms of assimilation and other issues, you know, there is a P there's a grain of truth to that, but it, your commentary on some of those <laughs> kind of, I mean, I, I was not really calling it out as problematic. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I would now, but <laughs> I, 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 I was sort of right in there with some of this. So, uh, which is embarrassing to admit, but I'm, I'm just trying to be honest. Um, you're, you're one of those therapists though, right? You're reflecting on those things and growing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so thoughts on that piece of how, how this is different, mm -hmm. um, racism than some of these other pieces and how it's the same and different. And what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, I mean, every race, every, well, and really transracial adoptees, we, we have our own culture. And right. you know, even within that, subgroups of Korean adoptees, Indian adoptees, Ethiopian adoptees, domestic adoptees, um, you know, domestic versus international or foster care, or kinship. I mean, there are all these subgroups, but we have our own cultures. And, and so often, especially with international adoptees, there's this, you know, we talk about this in-between world that we live in of yes. being white and American enough, but not being enough of our birth culture 
that we have this in-between space where we don't quite fit either world. And, and so we have to create. I never stop feeling sad when I hear that. I feel a little choked up right now just hearing that. That's hard. It, it is. And, but that's what makes being part of this transracial adoption culture so important. And race is a huge piece of that. Yes. That's why, and, and I'm like you, when I hear parents say, you know, we go to culture camp once a year, we go to adoption heritage camp. And it's like, well, that that's great. But that's, you know, your child shouldn't only see families who look like theirs or people who have lived experiences like theirs once a year. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they need that repeatedly. And so I, I always point people towards the cultural iceberg. Because yes. I feel like that gives them a very concrete sense of what culture truly means, the things that we forget about, right? Because people so often think about like, okay, well, I'm going to immerse my child in their culture by, you know, once a month we go to this restaurant by our house or we go to the culture camp once a year. Um, you know, we have the music that we play at home or we're trying to learn a few words of their their language. And and really those are just scratching the surface. I mean, to, to truly understand a culture, you have to live within it. Right. Otherwise, you are in that in-between space. And so it has to be about relationships with people of that race, people of that culture. And again, this is, I think, where it gets tricky because it is so multifaceted that when you adopt a child, you're adopting, you know, their their race, their culture, and all the, the pieces that go along with that. So you know, you're needing to have them around people who may have their their birth culture background or their racial background, but also people who have that adoption background and transracial adoption background. So all of those roles are really important in helping them build a healthy racial identity. And I, you know, you may have seen like I, I adapted Maslow's hierarchy to kind yes, of yes, and we, with your levels. permission, we'll share that in the in some yeah, of the absolutely podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a way to to kind of clear up a little bit around when we talk about what do you mean you need these people in these roles? Um, just that idea of of having those needs met, feeling safe. Oh, there it is. All right. <laughs> I'll point it out. All right. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that idea of you, you can't feel part of your racial group or your culture if you're not um, actually in relationships with people who have those similar lived experiences. You, you can't feel connected to that by going to a restaurant once a year. Once yeah. A month. And so, yeah. And I think, you know, this, ties in with the term racial mirrors. And I don't think everybody in the audience might be familiar with that term. I'm finding when I'm say it places, there's a lot of therapists that, that aren't familiar with that term that you can't just have a racial mirror like a couple times a year. Right. 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 So could you explain that concept mm-hmm. a bit and how that leads to someone feeling safe, connected, secure, you know, mm-hmm. open for attachment and safety? Yeah. I mean, so much of that honestly goes back to neurobiology that even when we think about mirror neurons, I think that's a way sometimes people can consider that idea of when we talk about racial and cultural mirroring, it really does go back to our our neurobiology around, you know, our mirror neurons, what they see is what they imitate. And, And so often there's this um, especially with my, my teen adoptees of color, they're struggling so much with identity around this balance of, do I fit in with the stereotypes and the assumptions people make about me, or do I try and defy them? 
Um, so for example, a lot of my East Asian adoptees will talk about how it seems like everybody at school expects them to do so well on schoolwork and homework and just be really, really bright because that's the stereotype of Asian students. And so, you know, the, they're kind of in this mode of, okay, well, I guess I have to be really good at school. I have to be perfect. I always have to get A's or I'm not going to do any work. I'm not going to fit that stereotype at all. I'm going to be a slacker. I'm not going to do any homework. I mean, and so it becomes this like, who am I? But when, when the only people they're seeing in their lives might be people in movies who fit those stereotypes or maybe somebody that they see once or twice a year and they, they don't really get to know them and maybe all they're seeing are the stereotypes that it really makes it difficult for them to integrate their racial identity into who they are as a person, right? Because if all they're seeing are things that are very superficial, essentially, and they're not getting to know people who look like them as individuals who have you know, complex personalities who aren't dichotomy, you know, they're not all good, all bad, um, all one stereotype or not a stereotype. They really need to get to know people as individuals and build those relationships in order to have some sense of what can I imitate? What are the possibilities around that? Mm -hmm. And I think another piece of this uh, is thinking about popular culture mm -hmm. and even mirrors there. I mean, and what, you know, when I've had people of color say, you know, think about what it would be like, um, and, and we're making some movement forward here, but think about what it would be like growing up and never seeing like really hardly anyone that looks like you in the movies or singing music or, you know, talk. Could you, I think again, that's something maybe um, within white privilege, like, it never even occurred to me. Like I didn't really realize that it helped me feel develop my identity to see all these different models around that look like me. I was just right. like, oh, it you gave know. you so many options of of who you yeah. could be. So talk think, about yeah. that a little bit yeah. in, in terms of that piece before we take our break here and get into yeah. some of the practical <laughs> things we want people to do about yeah. this. Yeah, I mean, so much of that, I think. And, and this will start to lead into that, but that idea of we need to step outside our comfort zone. We need to put ourselves into spaces where we are the minorities. And, and that's how we start to become more aware of our privileges and, and how those impact the way we move through the world. I mean, even though I'm a, an adoptee and a person of color, and there are ways that I may um, have disadvantages in, in those aspects, I'm also very aware and try to be very cognizant of the privileges I have that I am able-bodied and cisgendered and heterosexual and um, English is my first language. I mean, there are all these things that I also hold privilege in. And so trying to sometimes even list off and be aware of those, I think that that brings a whole new perspective. But you're right, I mean, I think so many people, that's the whole the whole thing about privilege, right? Is that right. you're unaware of it until it's pointed out. And so, right. yeah, that, I mean, that piece, especially in the media and what we see just in public every day, I mean, those are the things that I think a lot of transracial adoptees struggle with and that parents don't quite understand that having one mentor in your child's life who shares their race, you know, that or, or even something more like their ethnicity, not just their race, but maybe is from the exact same geographical region. I mean, 
even that isn't enough to only have one person. And you're right, it really does, it, it takes some imagination, I think, to consider yourself in a place where if, if I were really the only one, what would this be like? Because it's, it's so foreign to the experience of most white adoptive parents and white therapists. And so like I say, putting yourself outside that comfort zone, intentionally putting yourself in spaces where you are the minority in some way is incredibly powerful. It gives mm-hmm. so much empathy to what mm-hmm. you go through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, let's take a short break here because you have so many great resources and ideas about how people can talk to children about this and how parents can and how therapists can. And I know you, you're, you're putting together more and more. Um, so I want you to be able to talk about some of those uh, things. And so we'll take a break here and get back to that. This concludes part one of the two-part conversation between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Dr. Shatra Wurta-Liker on the impact of race and culture on attachment therapy. Part two will be released on Tuesday, October 29th. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.